0: Amen. Thank you, Doug. Good morning, City Light. All right, all right, we're going to get there. Um, I am excited to jump into scripture again with all of you. We're continuing our walk through the book of Joshua. This is an action-packed account of all that God did to give his wandering people a place to call home. That place was called the promised land, and it was full of good things, like sweet food, like milk and honey, and secure places to build homes where the people would have rest from their enemy attacks. This Promised Land is incredible. As we start into Joshua's chapter three and four today, I noticed uh, there's a bit of a transition in the book that happens. And uh, depending on the type of person you are, you may or may not notice or appreciate this. I think there are a few types of people in the world. Um, one is the people who are planners. And the other is those who are not. And even as I say that, you've probably sorted yourself into one of those categories, right? Uh, It's probably more of a spectrum than an either-or kind of thing, but we all lean toward planner or not so much. I'll confess to you all this morning... I'm a wing it kind of guy that lives in a world full of planners, okay? Doug's a planner, Dan's a planner, Nick is a planner, my wife Sarah is a planner. It's like a blessing and a curse for a guy like me because they got schedules and checklists and calendars and they're always prepared for what's coming next and planning ahead for what comes after that. And I just struggle to keep up, all right? If you land in that camp, the camp of the planners, then Joshua chapters 1 and 2, that's your jam. Because in Joshua chapter 1, God gives his people the plan. Get up and cross the river. That's it. That's the plan. And then in Joshua chapter 2, they do some preparations. They send some spies across the river to scout out the first city that they will encounter once they get into the promised land. It's called Jericho. They do some reconnaissance, get some intel. They're preparing for what comes ahead. So Joshua chapters 1 and 2, it's plan. And prepare. If you're anything like me, and you've got the kind of, it's all going to work out attitude, you were probably ready for the planning and prep to be done before it even started. Right, And so if that's you, let me say you're going to love chapters 3 and 4. Because these are the chapters where the plan gets executed. They cross the river. The main action of the book begins to take shape. And so we're going to look at chapters 3 and 4 today when the people of God cross the Jordan River and enter into the promised land. It's a journey that they take that begins on the east side of the river in a city called Shittim and ends on the west side of the river in a city called Gilgal. They're going to journey from Shittim to Gilgal. And this is a big deal. It's like a big deal in Bible history. In fact, it's such a big deal that nearly 700 years after these events took place, God spoke to his people through the prophet Micah and said these words Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. Now, it's a story we'll touch on in just a minute. And remember what happened from Shittim to Gilgal. That's our text today. Remember that. Why? That you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. So friends, the events recorded in these chapters and on these pages are meant to stand as an enduring reminder to God's people of His great power and His great might and His great love and His great plan for them for all time. These, this is not a story tucked away in the beginning pages of your Bible that's meant to be glossed over and easily forgotten. This is a great story of God's mighty, righteous act to get His people into the promised land. It's meant to be remembered. Are you with me? And so, if God's people 700 years later were supposed to remember it, we will do our best to remember it this morning. As we look at chapters three and four, I want you to see three things God gives his people a new Moses, a new miracle, and a new memorial. That's our three points for this morning. A new Moses, a new miracle, a new memorial. Let's jump in, all right? We start in chapter three, verse one. This is what it says. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shatim. Now, I'll be honest with you. When I read a verse like that, a sentence like that, I'm prone to think That's introduction, that's setting, that's a place that I don't know anything about, and so I'll just gloss over that and get to the real meat of what's going on. I don't know if any of you ever do that, but true confessions, that's what I do, okay? But I don't want to do that this morning because I think this setting, this context, makes the story so much richer. So we're going to look at this. Remember, this is not the first time the people of God have stood at the bank of the river Jordan ready to cross into the promised land. This is the second time that that's happened. The first time around, the people of God got scared, scared of the big cities with the thick walls and the tall people, and because because they were scared, they refused to obey God and enter into the land. Instead, they rejected him and and turned their own way. And and as a result, they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And after those wandering years were over, God led them back to this place on the riverbank and readied them to enter the promised land again. That's how they got to Shittim. Now, to get there... They had to overcome some things. They had to get through some things. They had to conquer two Amorite kings. Their names were Sihon and Og. And if you're going to be a king, Og is a great name, okay? So they conquer Sihon and Og. God gives them victory in both battles. And after those two battles, there's a third king that sees what happened to Sihon and Og and thinks, I better try something different. Things didn't go well for those guys. I'm going to try a different strategy. This third king, his name was Balak. It's the guy Micah talked about, oh my people, remember Balak. And uh, King Balak decided, instead of going right to battle against the people of God, I'm going to talk to a prophet and see if he won't call down a curse from God on the nation of Israel. And so he, he checks in with Balaam, the prophet, and asks for a curse. Three times Balaam the prophet asked God for a curse. three times, all God will give is a blessing. Blessing, blessing, blessing. And so King Balak is no fool. He says if they defeated Sihon and Og and their God is continuing to bless them, I will not fight. And so he backs off. And so we see the journey to Shittim is marked by God's faithfulness to to make a way for his people back to the promised land. And it brings them to Shittim. And so, with the local kings defeated, and God making the way, this new generation of the people of God are standing in the place that their parents stood 40-some years before, and they have a decision to make. Will we follow God into the promised land, or will we turn away from Him like our parents did? Will we follow God, trusting in his promises, trusting in his power, his provision, his plan, his sovereignty? Will we follow God into the promised land, or will we turn in fear and rebellion like our parents did before us? Now, that decision is not just an abstract theological thought exercise, There are real-life, tangible implications, right? Because God had told his people that the Amorites, the people who lived in the promised land, they had completely rejected God. And so uh, they had so rejected him that they had built their own little gods out of wood and stone, idols, and they had turned from God to bow down and worship to these little false gods, these little idols. And God had told the people, when you enter the promised land, you must drive out and destroy all of that idolatry and all of those idolaters, or else the people of God would bow down and worship to those same false gods. They would turn from God like the people of the land. Had. And so the question, will we follow God, is a question, will we trust Him to continue to preserve us and show His power and might as we enter into the promised land and drive out this idolatry and these idolaters? Now, that decision, will we follow God or will we turn from Him, was a decision that their generation had to make. And friends, I think it's a decision that every generation has to make. Every person has to make. We have to make a decision. Will we follow God or will we turn from him? Will we know God's word and his promises and his plan and his power and bow our knee to him as our king and our God and follow? Or will we hear what the world has to say and buy into the promises that it makes and turn from God and follow the ways of the world instead? This is not just a theological, uh, abstract thought exercise. It has real-life, tangible um, impacts, right? Like, for instance, the Bible tells us this. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And so there's this big contrast in those, in those verses, right? On the one hand, there's the whole law of God is the golden rule, love your neighbor as yourself. And if you compare that to bite and devour and consume one another, like the choice seems easy, right? Yeah, we should love each other. We should get along. The whole, the world would be a whole lot better place if we all just did that. That seems like the obvious easy choice. But man, when we walk outside of these doors and we look around, it just feels like it's really hard to see that kind of love in this world today, right? I mean, like political tensions and pandemic tensions and racial tensions and the list of tensions. It goes on and on and on. It feels like we live in a world where it's really hard to, to not bite and devour and be consumed by one another. Love uh, your neighbor as yourself sounds like the easy call. But it gets really hard when the rubber meets the road, right? And that's the kind of thing that the people of God experienced in Shittim. Will we trust God and follow him or will we turn away? It was a hard decision and friends, frankly, they made the wrong one. Rather than driving out the idolatry and the idolaters, they embraced them. Quite literally, actually. Um, Look at this from Numbers chapter 25. It says, While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. That's one of the idols. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And so see, man, in Shittim, the contrast between God and his people is stark. God, as Joshua led the people, sorry, as God was faithfully preserving his people from their enemies and giving them victory in battle and speaking blessing after blessing after blessing over them, his people were turning away from him, yoking up with a false God. They were bowing down to idols. They were joining in with the people of the land. And what God warned would happen, happened. And so Shittim is not just a random place on the map. Shittim is a place where the people broke their covenant with God. God had said, you will be my people and I will be your God. And what happened here is the people, it was a, it was a covenant almost like a marriage covenant. We will be each other's. And here in Shittim, the people rejected God, turned from him, cheated on him by bowing down to another God. And so Shittim is a place of covenant breaking. It's a place where the people broke their covenant with God. And so with that context, it just adds a whole lot of depth to Joshua chapter 3 verse 1 when it says they set out from Shittim right they set out from there they turned their backs on There. They left behind the place where the covenant was broken to follow God into the place where his covenant would be restored. They left the place where they had turned from God and they followed God to the place where he promised to lead them. When they set out from Shittim, they were leaving something behind to embrace something else. Are you tracking with me? This is a uh, literal turning as they left the city and kind of a figurative, they are going somewhere else to do, God is going to do a new thing with them. God is going to do the impossible. He's going to make a way for covenant breakers to enter back into covenant with him. And so let's look at how God moved as his people set out from Shittim. First, he gives them a new Moses. Now, Prior to this event, uh, anytime the people of God struggled, anytime they quarreled, they had conflict, they had questions, they wandered off the path that God had for them, anytime they were in trouble, the people of God would go to Moses. Moses was God's man. The Bible says that Moses spoke to God face to face and there was no one else who had ever had a relationship with God like that. And because of that, the people of God knew that Moses spoke God's words to them and they would follow him. And so Moses was this big deal in the people, uh, among the people of Israel, but now Moses is dead. And I was trying to think, there's, it's hard to come up with a comparison of the significance of Moses' death to the people of Israel like what they would have felt, how hard it would be to replace a guy like Moses. And so the best I could come up with was it may, the Israelites maybe felt sort of like Husker fans felt when Tom Osborne retired, right? Like, will we ever get another coach like that? Could anybody else ever lead us to the promised land of a national championship again? Could that ever happen? friends? It hasn't happened yet, right? Even Scott Frost hasn't lived up to the Osborne legacy. And just like coaches like Tom Osborne don't come along every day, leaders like Moses don't come along every day. And so it's significant that God speaks to Joshua and says this, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. God is saying, Joshua, I'm going to make it clear. I'm about to exalt you so that all my people know that just as I was with Moses, just as I spoke to him and he spoke my words to the people and they listened and followed, so I'm going to speak to you and you will speak to my people and they will follow. That's going to happen. God promised a new Moses and he delivered on his promise. Joshua heard from God. Now I know there are people who claim to hear from God and it gets real weird real fast, right? Like you know the the televangelist type of people I'm talking about. They make big promises and don't deliver in the name of hearing from God. That is not how it went down with Joshua. Joshua heard from God like Moses did. Moses was a humble man whose whole goal was to faithfully direct the the gaze of God's people back to God, to give all the glory to God. Less about me, more about you. Moses was a faithful leader who exalted God in all times, and Joshua was that kind of leader. And he heard from God, and he told the people exactly what God said he would do this day, and then God did it. Okay, here's how it went down. Joshua told the people, here is how you shall know, that the living God is among you. This is gonna be the sign that you know God is still with us even though Moses is dead. This is what you need to watch for. When the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing and the waters coming down from above shall stand up in one heap. And so the people of God know the deal now, okay? The, the priests are gonna walk out in front carrying the Ark of the Lord. Now, the Ark of the Lord, if you're unfamiliar, think like a treasure chest that, that both uh, embodied and represented the presence of God among his people, okay? So the priests are gonna carry the Ark of the Lord down to the river, nearly a half mile ahead of the people, And they were going to step in the water, and as soon as their feet touched the water, if God had spoken to Joshua, the waters would stop and pile up in a heap way upstream. If that happened, all the people standing a half mile back so that they could all see, they would all know God indeed spoke to Joshua like he spoke to Moses. But if the priests walked down there, and they dip their feet in, and they end up walking back to camp with wet socks, Joshua's a sham, right? And so what we see here is a setup that it's going to take a new miracle to establish the new Moses. You with me? And so this is where we're at in Joshua. Now, let's see what happens next. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan, When the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. I don't know about you, I read that and I'm like, it is a super long buildup to end with a Parenthetical, right? Like when they get, when the priests carrying the ark get right up to the water and their feet enter into it, they dip in the brink. And then Joshua interrupts and says, The Jordan overflows its banks at harvest. And I'm like, What are you doing? Get to the punchline, right? But I want to take a minute and pause with the Bible here because I think Joshua is giving us context for what's about to happen. See, the people have walked up to the Jordan River and there is no bridge to cross it. And this river, I did a little study, a commentary said that this river is not like a babbling brook or a winding creek. Now, the floodplain of the Jordan River varied in width from like 200 yards to a mile wide. So you're talking a couple football fields to a mile that they got to get across. And Joshua's saying that it's flooded right now as the people are looking at it. So this is a long way to get across the water. Not only that, um, the river channel itself is like 90 to 100 feet wide. And it varies in depth from 3 to 12 feet. Now the average Israelite man in these times likely stood around 5'3". Okay, so I'm a big guy compared to those guys. And so if they're crossing and the shallowest is three feet, they're waist high. If it's 12 feet, the water's flowing well above their heads. So the river is wide and it's deep and the water, the current flows at a quick clip, all right? The drop in elevation for this river on average is nine feet per mile at the steepest points, it's over 40 feet per mile. And so the river that's, that flows before them is at its widest and its deepest, its fastest of all year. This is the time when it is the most challenging to cross that it ever gets. The point that Joshua is making is that If these waters stop for the priests, it ain't going to happen by human strength or ingenuity. It will take an act of God to stop those waters. And so, back to the Bible, verse 15 just said that the priests were dipping their feet in the brink of the water. And what happens next? The water's coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan. Friends, let the miracle sink in. God did what he said he would do. The river stopped flowing. What looked impossible for men and women like us was not impossible for God, and at long last, his people entered the promised land. It wasn't by their own strength or ability. God made the way. He had given them their new Moses and their new miracle in one fell swoop. Amen? And on that day, Because of what the mighty hand of God had done, the people set up a new memorial to mark the occasion. Now, this is a big deal in God's Word. It's like the emphasis of this whole passage. I know that because uh, there's a a biblical, let me show you how I know it, all right? There's a biblical literary tool um, called a chiasm that writers use to structure a story to make the emphasis clear, all right? A chiasm often looks like this. The story's told A, B, C, B, A, okay? And so, in other words, the story, the the events in the story are told A, B, C, and then repeated in reverse order, B, A. This structure emphasizes what's in the middle, It's kind of like if you were to climb or drive up to the Lewis and Clark lookout, you would make the climb to see what was on top, the grand view from the peak, and then you would climb or drive back down. A chiasm emphasizes what's in the middle, and our passage today has that kind of a structure. I don't want you to just take my word for it. Go home later today and read chapters 3 and 4, and you will see it. It's there. It looks like this. Israel starts camped at Shittim, and then they begin crossing the river, and then they get these memorial stones, and then they finish crossing the river, and then they're camped at Gilgal again. So they camp, they cross, they get the stones, they cross, they camp. That's the chiasm. We are supposed to see the emphasis of the text as this memorial. So not only is the memorial supposed to remind us of something, all the readers who read this text are supposed to remember this emphasis, all right? Have I made it clear this is a big deal? And so what happened? Well, God told Joshua to have his uh, to pick one man from each of the 12 tribes so and as they crossed, they would pick up a river stone from the bottom of the riverbed, a smooth river stone that had been chipped away and smoothed over as the waters um, flowed over it. And they were to carry that to the other side. And then when all of the nation finished crossing over and the priests stepped out of the water and the waters began to flow again behind them, those 12 men would take their river stones and pile them up on the riverbank as a memorial to remind God's people what he had done. And Joshua spells out exactly what is supposed to be remembered when people saw those stones. Here's what Joshua said. When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over As the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and you may fear the Lord your God forever. And so Joshua says that this memorial is set up as a reminder for two groups of people. The first is the children of the people of God, the ongoing generations of God's people who will live in that land. And he says, when they ask, hey, dad, hey, mom, hey, grandpa, hey, grandma, why are those stones there? The people of God are supposed to say, oh, let me tell the story. They're supposed to remind us of when God parted the Red Sea to lead his people out of slavery. And then he stopped up the Jordan River to lead his people into promise and blessing in the promised land. Oh, there's no other God that has done those kinds of things for his people like our God has done for us. That's your legacy. That's his power. That's your identity. Never forget it. The first group of people is the children of God. The second group of people is all the other peoples of the earth. (laughs) Anybody else from anywhere else that might see those rocks and think to themselves, how did those round river rocks get there? They kind of stand out among all the jagged land rocks around them. makes me think like sometimes I stand at the pedestrian bridge uh, that leads over to Nebraska and I look and I I see the cement pillars that hold that bridge up above the water and I wonder how did they get those there? How did that happen? How do they still stand there? And I kind of stand in awe and wonder what must have happened to get those there like that. I think for these people, the other, all the peoples of the earth who would look and see those round, smooth river rocks in a pile among a whole bunch of jagged land rocks, they would wonder the opposite. Not how did those get in there, but how did those get out of there? How did they do that? How did they get to the bottom of the river to extract those big rocks and set them up in the pile here? What does that mean? And as they asked and wondered that, the people of God would say, oh, it was by no act of human strength. It was our mighty God that stopped the river so that we could pick them up and walk across on dry ground. This was supposed to be a memorial in mission. For the whole earth to know the might and strength and love and power and plan of God for his people for all time. A a memorial to what God had done. And so friends, with the people of God having their new Moses and their new miracle and their new memorial, they set up camp again. Here's what the Bible says. The people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And now just like at the beginning, uh, they set out from Shittim, you might gloss over that, that's introduction, we'll get to the, the cool part. You might gloss over this as conclusion. So they're in a different city now on the other side, nice end of the story. But I think there's something here for us. The people encamped at Gilgal on the tenth day of the first month. That's significant because back in Exodus, God, when the when God's people were still enslaved to the Egyptians, God had done nine mighty miracles, preparing to set His people free from slavery. And as God readied himself and his people to do the 10th miracle, the Passover miracle, he told his people to prepare and it would happen on the the 10th day of the first month. The same date that these uh, people 40 years later crossed the river on dry ground and set up camp in the promised land. And so that date, the 10th day of the first month, ties these two events together. They are connected. The redemption plan that started on the 10th day of the first month for slaves in Egypt was concluded on the 10th day of the first month for inheritors of God's promise in the promised land. The, the, The freedom, when God set his people free, made a promise, led them out, when God's people turned away from slavery and followed him in a new covenant, it was broken in the middle and yet it's restored over here in Gilgal on the 10th day of the first month. God is saying what started back then ended right here. God's plan came to completion. The people of God turned from a broken covenant to re-entering it again. They turned from their rebellion to faith in God again. They turned from their wandering to a new home again. This is God keeping his promise to his people, making a way where there was no way. God did what these people could not do without him. And so we see the journey from Shittim to Gilgal is to be remembered because it is the mighty, righteous act of God on behalf of his people. And friends, I get so excited about this story because to me it feels like an appetizer that is meant to whet our appetite for the main course. It's a It's supposed to be remembered because it's a a foretaste, a foretelling, a, a prediction of what God would do for us, his people now. He will give us the very things he gave his people back then. And let me just tell you, he's done it. Like he kept his promise to these people, he's kept his promise to us people. He's given us a new Moses. His name is Jesus. Jesus is the new and greater Moses. Track with me. He doesn't just speak to God face to face. He is God. He is one with the Father from before the beginning of time all the way through eternity. Jesus is God. That is the new and greater Moses. And our new and greater Moses, Jesus, gives us a new and greater miracle. He didn't just stop the waters of the raging river that was between the people in the promised land. Jesus took on the raging river of sin that we could never cross on our own. The miracle that he accomplished was he took our place on the cross. His body nailed where our body ought to have been nailed. His broken flesh paying the penalty for your sin and mine his blood shed there so that ours didn't have to be the blood that jesus shed is enough sacrifice to cover all sins for all people in all places and all times who would call on his name it is the new and greater and greatest miracle we could ever know and friends He's given us a new memorial. We call it communion and we're going to celebrate it in just a moment. But before we do, can I make an application of this text very clear? I think we're prone to read texts like this and think God can stop the river and so then we ask the question, man, what river is rushing in my life that I need God to stop? And can I just say today that is, it's the wrong application. Instead, Can we read this story and ask, am I remembering the mighty act of God on my behalf? Am I following God and his plan and his promises with his love and his power? Am I following God or have I turned away from him and trusted in the world instead Oh friends, would we read this text and see not another um, people getting an act of God that we'll never get a know, but instead would we read this and see ourselves and wonder, oh God, why would you have done a mighty work for me like that? How can I follow you into the blessings that you have promised for me in Christ? Oh, would we see this and know that the same God who made a way through the impossible from the covenant breakers at Shittim to re-enter the covenant at Gilgal, that same mighty God has made a way through the impossible so that sinners like us can know the blessings of Christ now and forever. Amen? Will you guys pray with me? Mm -hmm. Great and awesome God, I thank you for this story in your word. I thank you that Oh, the, the history of the Bible is so deep and so rich, so true, so revealing of who you are. And God, I thank you most today that it, it just reassures us that you are who you say you are. You keep your promises even to promise breakers. You, your covenant is open even to covenant breakers like us. God, you've made a way so that if we follow you, if we turn to you, if we trust in you, if we bow our knee to you and you alone, we can know your promises now and forever. Your power and your might and your love and your truth. So God, I I just ask this morning for us as a church, would you make us followers? Once you bow the knee to you and you alone, And so if your head is bowed right here, um, I just want you to take a moment and reflect. Ask this question. Do I know and remember the mighty act that God has done for me? Do you know that truth, that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin? If you don't, today can be the day that you turn to him. It's like you see the memorial stone and wonder, how did that happen? And then when you hear, Joshua said, it was so that all the earth may fear God forever. And so if you hear what Jesus has done, and you say, oh man, I want a God like that. I want to follow a a God who saves like that, a God who has power like that. Then right now, you can turn your heart to him and say a simple prayer. Jesus, I need you for all of the impossible things in my life that I have not found a way out, for all the baggage that I carry, for all the darkness that hangs over me, I can't find a way out. And Jesus, I need you. I need your love and your power and your light. I'm bowing my knee to you today. Would you be my king now and forever? Now, if you could pray a prayer like that, if you could make a confession like that, oh, Jesus is ready to welcome you home to give you all the blessings that he promises in his word. If you've prayed that prayer, I'd encourage you, would you talk to somebody, somebody sitting next to you, to one of the pastors? Afterwards, we would love to walk this journey with you. And friend, maybe you've already known that. You've remembered the promises of God His mighty acts. And today you're just reminded. You did the impossible for me, God. And I've known that and I just need to remember it. I need to stand in awe that you did what I could not do. I need to again bow my knee to my king in gratitude, humility, giving all the glory and praise to the one who did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Oh, people of God, we remember the work of Jesus for us and respond in worship and praise because he is our savior now and forever. Jesus, thank you for all that you have done. We love you and we pray this in your name, amen.